Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism Episode 203 Entrepreneur as Bodhisattva This week we're joined by serial entrepreneur and innovation expert Nick Jankel to speak about enlightened entrepreneurship. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This week, we have a guest host, Rohan Gunatilika from 21awake.com. Rohan, it's good to have you back, buddy. Hi, Vince. Great to be here. So who are you speaking with this time? Well, this time I spoke to a guy called Nick Jankel. Hi, my name is Nick Jankel. I currently live between Los Angeles and London, developing a number of media and multimedia and tech projects all focused around where personal transformation and social change intersect. Cool. I understand you and Nick go way back as friends, so it must have been a pretty interesting conversation exploring this stuff together. Yeah, it's really great. Nick and I have known each other for a few years now. And we had a really wide-ranging conversation, everything from the potential of new innovative spiritual products all the way to how being an entrepreneur can actually be a spiritual practice in itself. Nice. I can't wait to hear it. Now, Nick, I thought it'd be really fun to start with a really classic quote, which we both really like and is used up and down meditation halls and satsang rooms and any spiritual classes. And maybe it's the most famous saying of the great 20th century Indian sage, Mr. Nisargadatta Maharaj. So why don't you say the quote and then we'll start from there. Uh, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. What's this got to do with entrepreneurship? Well, the entrepreneur is set up in society to create uh, ideas, to create businesses, to create change through their own personal efforts, their drive, their ingenuity, their brilliance. And of course, the rewards are that you get fame and fortune, hopefully both for most entrepreneurs. And therefore, you need the you need a very keen sense of I. You need a sense of your own genius, your own creativity, your own talents. Otherwise, you can't get stuff done, basically. But at the same time, um, you also, well, I personally make sure I remember that the world doesn't need me at all. The world will carry on just as it is without me. And as soon as my ego becomes uncoupled and takes control of the project rather than my heart and the, the purpose and the, and the compassion that I'm operating from, things start to go awry for me. And I've seen, obviously, for other people. So this, this quote just keeps me remembering that it's the middle way. It's, it has to be a, an absolute balance between knowing that you are a force of change you are important. There is something you can do. If you see something that hurts um, you or you feel is, is suffering that need not be there, then it is your job to step up and do something. At the same time, it reminds you that if you lead with that energy, you end up being what I call, call an activist, which is essentially judging the world or forcing your view on the world, which also then obviously creates personal suffering. Because as soon as you are an entrepreneur that's out of balance, 
you start to realize you haven't done as much as you wanted to do, you haven't got as far as you wanted to get, you haven't made as much impact as you want to make, you haven't made as much money as you want to made, and you start to sort of suffer from a sense of lack. So this kind of quote really keeps me in the kind of the target, the sights of, of my personal journey, which, which I've mentioned is, to people is a kind of my personal Cohen um, is to resolve the seeming paradox um, or the tension between being an entrepreneur committed to social and spiritual rejuvenation and, and regeneration and creativity at the same time as a practitioner of non-duality around melting myself constantly into big mind, big heart, oneness, the void, whatever you want to call that. And yeah, it's an amazing challenge for a life. I live it every day. From the minute I get up in the morning, I'm looking at my emails, to the minute I get back, you know, go to sleep at night, I am living this balance between action, doing, solving problems, and being nothing. You have a lovely phrase for this, which is enlightened entrepreneurship. Yes, exactly. Because entrepreneurship is deemed by society, or certainly a lot of spiritual practitioners, as exceptionally unenlightened. And I think that's actually the spiritual traditions have, have lost out a little bit in, in today's modern world through sort of rejecting entrepreneurship and also a key part of that, which is marketing, branding, which really, when you really discern beneath them, they're, they're actually agnostic, or they can be agnostic. They don't need to be attached to the worldview that they usually are attached to which is about making money for big companies or making money for yourself. So I believe that entrepreneurship can be reframed um, and be uh, um, not just a source of enlightening projects, enlightening media, enlightening tools, enlightening ideas, but also a source of enlightenment for oneself by living this kind of daily practice of doing lots and having plans and goals and lists and, and ambition. I guess. Sure. And let, let's talk a little bit about those two things. So yeah. you mentioned that you're involved in a number of different projects. You're sort of quite prolific in the number of things you're involved in. Could you sort of say a little about what sort of things are keeping you up at night at the moment? I'm working on a number of TV shows as, I guess, a life coach is the easiest way to, to say what I, I do to most people. But within that, my kind of um, angle is to bring a sense of the mystical, the spiritual into people's living rooms without them realizing it, really. And then I'm working on a couple of exciting online projects. One is a peer-to-peer life coaching and emotional intelligence website that fits on Facebook. So it's community-led co-creativity type stuff for young people. That's very exciting. And then my big project I've just launched is a travel project, so kind of like a travel business, really, which is all about transformational travel. So helping people and encouraging people and informing people of the cultural traditions and rituals and festivals that they can go and experience that will help them uncover themselves, let go of some of their pain, suffering, trauma, uh, and become more committed to shared creativity, collective creativity, uh, and the relief of suffering. So yeah, that's the travel side. So yeah, basically I'm in the, I work in the nexus of technology, uh, media. In fact, one of the reasons I'm in California is I believe it's five of the, the big ingredients for global and individual rejuvenation are, are really hot in, in California. There's um, a very big and innovative spiritual scene here. 
you've got the tech scene in the Bay, uh, Silicon Valley. You've got the media scene in Hollywood, very powerful, very open to transformational content. You've got the social change movement, social entrepreneurs, that whole movement. And then to sort of underpin all, you've got some of the greatest scientists in the world and loads of science on meditation, science of, of altered states, etc. So I'm kind of here because I believe that they need to interweave together to really do some of the stuff that we're doing. And I think that's what Buddhist Geeks is doing so brilliantly, is interweaving some of these disparate fields to create joined up offers, content that's both content inspiring, but also enabling. It's got tools and has an underlying business that makes it sustainable. Yeah, so that, that's a really good uh, picture of the types of projects you're involved in. And I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of entrepreneurship as a practice in itself. Yes. Because that's almost anathema. Because like you say, there's a, there's a bit of baggage. It's the whole sort of issues around money, issues around business being bad. So, totally. When you experience the word business as sort of 1980s Gordon Gecko or um, Champagne on Wall Street, etc., then it's very easy to discount it. But if you actually took away what business is, you can actually see it as the greatest force of ingenuity uh, on the planet. Because one person essentially goes, oh... Why is that done that way? Maybe there's a better way of doing it. And in fact, if you think of it, most of the great sages have essentially been people who have been disruptors, have gone, hold on a minute, this way of doing things in, with all these Indian gods and everything, it's all a bit much. Um, maybe there's another way of doing things. So if you see business as just a seed of one person going, why this? Maybe there's something else possible. Then you suddenly start to see business as an opportunity for creating social and spiritual uh, transformation, yeah. essentially. But then, then there's still the hard work afterwards of stripping out all the other parts of business which do come along with it. So one of the things about entrepreneurship, which is as a practice, which is really challenging, is building the right set of rewards and drivers for oneself. Because obviously we need to live with money, but if it's the fundamental driving force, you're going to get trapped. Um, and again, I'm no expert on Buddhist texts, but I see myself as some kind of contemporary, maybe more secular version of the um, Bodhisattva vow around my purpose is to bring a sense of liberation to as many people's lives as I can, using the richness of media and technology to do that. A couple of things really struck out when you were talking. One was this idea of the entrepreneur's bodhisattva and how framing your work and your mission. Because we, like, we often in spiritual circles, we talk about service, but that's almost in a Christian charitable type that has those overtones, really. Yes. But, but taking it very much on in that sort of entrepreneurial angle seems really important. And... Something I'm also interested in asking you about is in all the sort of, be it sort of business literature or management books and all this thing around entrepreneurialism and so on, the cult of the individual is really important. And mm. it reminds me a bit of the position of the guru or the teacher in spiritual circles or in Buddhism around how people are important unless they've written a book or people are important unless they're heading up something. And so there is this real cult of the individual. And how do if we are going to become quite actively engaged, be it through activism or, in your case, through enterprise, how do you manage that dance between a system which rewards egoic behaviour and, in a way, that's the way in which you can get your messages out there to a certain extent? 
great, great insight. It's actually probably one of the guiding features of my life at the moment. When I applied for my visa to the Amer- America, which is an O-1 visa, just the name of it alone will tell you what the journey's been. The name of the visa is an alien of extraordinary ability. <laughs> so I'm at the kind of cutting edge knife point of this cult of the individual. And I had to play into it. I had to put together a dossier of everything I've ever done that's impressive and important and try and get people to write references about me. And it was a real journey for me because I didn't feel comfortable doing it. I'd spent years, as we talked about, you know, unpicking that and not being worried about that and not being worried about having a PhD. In a way, not, being, not feeling like I needed to have a PhD to be a great source of, of ideas and change in the world. And then I've been forced by the nature of my choices to be in America to go back in that. And when I'm now I'm here in America, it's even more intense than Europe. People here literally, if you don't have a PhD and or a book, and or 10 famous friends telling the world how good you are, it's exceptionally hard to get cut through um, and to get your name out there. On the other hand, the internet has provided us with a way for ideas to disseminate that don't play so much into those rules. So there's a kind of balancing out there. But again, as we all know, getting attention on the internet isn't the easiest thing either. And Twitter and TED are... They were very individually based as well, to some extent. Absolutely. I mean, for my own place, I am deeply suspicious in a kind of what I would call a Foucauldian way. Um, Michel Foucault, the French philosopher of, of the um, 60s, who basically looked to see where anyone's trying, where there's any form of hierarchy or claim for knowledge, there's usually a power imbalance and usually some form of injustice and domination and, and that kind of stuff. So I'm a deeply suspicious of any form of hierarchy whether it's in spiritual circles or business circles and I for one with my own work and my own teaching are very much along the lines of I've got some tools I've got some ideas they might help they might not but I don't have the answers for you because it's your life and I found something quite interesting in America that doesn't work very well (laughs) they want me to be famous they want me to be a big name they want me to be the guy who doesn't really share where the vulnerability of my journey, they want me to say that I've got the answers for them. And one of the things that I see challenging for a lot of gurus, self-proclaimed or otherwise, in the US and, and UK, is that I believe that when someone sort of learned everything they have to learn from you, you've got to kick them out and go and find another teacher so they get another angle. And yet people don't like to do that here. They like followers. There's a whole sense of having followers, which makes me very uncomfortable, the idea that someone will follow me. But it seems like the people want you to be a guru who claims knowledge um, and direct transmission or whatever it is you claim. And yet I'm very uncomfortable with that. I don't think that's the way the world's moving towards. I think we're moving towards peer-to-peer spirituality, both literally in terms of dialogic truth. Truth emerges between us in conversation, in meditation together, in presence together, but also in terms of learning from each other, peer learning and that's where I think the world's going. I think there's a reason for it. I think it's an emergence of a zeitgeist that's kind of balancing out the cult of the individual. But it doesn't make running a business in this space particularly easy. Sure. And I've made choices that have made my business harder to run because I, I'm not a single-minded self-promoter. But I kind of have to be, and that's a real interesting balance for me. That's, I'm living that right now. I mean, I'm, I'm developing an email f- list and whatever around um, my name even before a year ago i didn't have my own website with my own name sure and i got to america and people are just like you're mad 
You know, you should have been doing this 10 years ago with your own name. I know you've also gone on that similar journey in terms of, it's not my name. I don't want my name to be about what I do. Yeah. But it's an act of authorial stand. It's a brand. And ultimately, I've reflected, I have a unique set of experiences. It doesn't mean I am somehow special. The conditions of my life and the um, synergies and the serendipities have led me to have a set of skills that not many people have. And I guess I'm becoming more comfortable with blowing that trumpet whilst knowing that I'm not the blower. Sure. And certainly not the music. So what, what do you see as the opportunity now for enterprise or business which have sort of spiritual end? When you think of spiritual business, we often think of shops selling crystals and stuff like that. <laughs> that's to be, quite to a be few, crude. There's quite a few around me in Los Angeles, let me tell you. I bet, like, one of the things I talk about personally is how the aesthetic around meditation and certainly around Buddhism, this is sort of the area that I look at is the aesthetic is broken is a sort of one of my provocative that's an aside but i think my my question is around what do you see as the opportunity here you talk about this nexus in certainly in california of all these different elements of science technology wisdom traditions all sitting together are we on the verge of something special here or is it just all gonna be more crystals and incense <laughs> well i like to think of myself as a trend spotter i used to do that professionally and i'm very perceptive to cultural shifts Entrepreneurs have to be, and certainly innovation consultants have to be. And I get the sense that there are vast audiences, new audiences, interested in wisdom, backed up by science, practical, everyday stuff. But the key is, the aesthetic is very key, is it has to be packaged in a way that makes sense to them. The way I talk about this is, if a kid's just been playing with a PlayStation game that had... 100 million invested in it, and then they've watched a couple of ads from Coke, and then they've watched uh, an HBO show or, or Avatar, and then you come with your wisdom media, and it's cheesy and bad production values and poorly written and poorly conceived and stuck in a kind of 1960s purple patchouli aesthetic, then you just lose them. The cost of entry is the the brand, the marketing, the media, the shininess, that's the cost of entry. But once you've entered, I think there is a generation hungry for meaning, hungry for what I would call a kind of mystical path. I mean, when I was 14, I was deeply into mysticism, but there was no path for me. There was no way of accessing it that was kind of acceptable. So I think there's a massive opportunity for all kinds of media and technology products that are delivering wisdom. And in fact, the a conference I went to this year, Wisdom 2.0, is beginning to look at that. But I'm look, also talking with a number of people in NA about the conference around transformational media. But the thing is not, when most people hear that, they think of films like The Secret or um, you know that kind of stuff. Yeah. And my start point is, no, we need to start as if we are making... You need, to start, you need to start with the culture yeah. and the audience. Exactly. And exactly. Meet, meet them on their own terms. User-centric thinking. But the great thing is there are people I'm meeting from HBO, from Disney, from MTV, who are, they're all interested in this area. So there is interest and there is really a hunger. And there's, the challenge is it's getting the interests at the right moment, at the right time, connected to someone with money. That's the key. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, 
hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.